This is a great problem. I like to say this from time to time. It's a good problem that we have at our church that when we tell you, hey, talk to your neighbor, you take longer than we thought you would to talk to your neighbor. That's good. That's good. Um, well, speaking of, speaking of that, uh, if, if you're new around here, you might be wondering, uh, I, I don't know anybody. That was, that was really uncomfortable and awkward for me. Uh, well, you, I think this is the perfect day for you to show up because um, I was thinking this week about family reunions. Have you ever been to a family reunion? Um, I, went, I went to a family reunion once. I've been to a couple, but I remember the first time I went to a family reunion with Sharon. So Sharon and I have been married for over 20 years now. I remember going to a family reunion, getting in the car, and she's like, we're, we're going to this family gathering. And I went, cool, I know two people that are gonna be at this event, right? And I'm an extrovert, but I remember the feeling of going to this family event, and, and I didn't know the stories of the family, and if you've ever spent any time with Sharon when she's around her family, you know, and maybe this has been your experience as well in your own family, that you know that they are, storytelling people. And, and the thing about Sharon, and particularly Sharon and Cheryl, her twin sister, uh, who Cheryl's up here leading worship, and Sharon's up here giving announcements. So you've heard from both of them today. Well, when they get together in a room, like this will probably happen later on as we're watching the football game later today. They'll just at some point just start talking, and they'll like get into story mode. And they'll go, hey, you remember that thing? And they'll be like inside jokes and laughter. And I remember coming into family reunion moments as Sharon and I were in our dating era, and, uh, and, and having no clue what was going on. And it was kind of uncomfortable. It was kind of awkward. And it took me some time to figure out what are the stories, what, what is going on in this family? What have I gotten myself into with these people? And the good thing is that over time, eventually their stories uh, became a little bit of my story. But I'm, I'm asking you that question. I'm sharing a bit of my experience with you today because I think that the passage that we're going, going to spend some time studying today, it, it might be helpful for us if we look at it through that lens of a special family gathering, maybe as a family reunion this is the lens that I want us to look at, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38 today. Uh, because as you read this passage of Scripture, I, I want you to know, the first couple of verses, you're going to go, oh, I could hear a good sermon out of that. And then once we get to verse 23, you're going to hope that I read really fast. Um, but I'm going to need to read relatively slow, and you'll understand why in just a minute. Uh, but, I, but I want you to look at this family moment today with us as we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Pastor Danny picked that up last week with our awesome uh, Youth Sunday that we had uh, last weekend. Uh, and today we're going to just keep on moving. But we cannot skip this passage of scripture. Now, for a couple of reasons, I want us to pause and pray before I read this entire chunk of scripture and then we get into the word this morning. God, we do say thank you for an opportunity to worship you. We say thank you for an opportunity to dig into your word. I pray that this passage of scripture, that for various reasons we might be tempted to either move quickly through a chunk of it or to simply skip over it entirely, that you would speak to us from every word of your word as we study scripture today. Uh, help me, Holy Spirit, to say something that is what you would say from this passage of scripture to our friends and our family this morning. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Okay, so now as we are picking it up today, let's see if we can get into uh, verse, we're going to end chapter 3 today. We'll go all the way to the end of chapter 3 at verse 38, but let's begin at verse 21. Now, before one, one more thing before I read this. Pastor Danny set the tone for us last week. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He was a bit of an interesting fella. He was out there in the wilderness, and people were coming out to be baptized by him. Luke tells us that he was uh, engaging in something called the baptism of the repentance of sin. And so he, people would come out, and they would be baptized, repenting of their sin, and then be baptized in water by John. And then all these different people came out, and they said, what should we do? How should we live differently according to the good news that you're telling us? And he would tell, like the soldiers, hey, don't take more than is reasonable from people, and don't be a punk uh, as you're out there being a soldier. And he would tell the tax collectors, don't steal from people, don't 
be a terrible tax collector, uh, but do what you do to honor the Lord, and all of this. And, and he gets in some trouble with the religious leaders. You know, they didn't really like the way that he was challenging them. And so this is a little bit of the context. So while he's still out there, in that same moment, it says in verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were baptized, so John baptized all of the people, and Jesus apparently has been standing there watching this the whole time in, on the sidelines, just watching all of this happen. It says when all of those people who were there were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And he was praying, as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now this isn't the end of our passage today, so now would you enjoy with me uh, a passage of scripture that we will call the genealogy of Jesus. He goes on, Luke goes on and says, as, we begin, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old, and he was thought to be the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi. I'm going to read all of these names. Okay, uh, we're going to read every word of the Gospel of Luke together at Life Church. Okay, so the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son, you can be praying for me as I'm reading these names. The son of Jeni, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Negai, son of Maath, son of Mattathias, son of Simeon, son of Joseph, son of Jodah, son of Joan, Joanan son of Risa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Kosam, son of El-Medam, son of Er, son of Joshua, might be a name you recognize, son of Eleazar, son of Joram, son of Methat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, that you recognize that chunk, don't you? Uh, there we go. Uh, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Meleah, son of Mena, son of Metatha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of Nashon, son of Amminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, my favorite name in the list, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mehalel, El, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Whew. All right. Now, okay, now that we've read the entire passage, I, I said to you a minute ago, we're going to try to frame this through the lens of Jesus and a family gathering. Now, just for context, uh, you'll remember that Jesus and John the Baptist were related. They were, they were related by uh, Mary and his mother Elizabeth, our cousins. And so uh, these guys, uh, does that, I think that makes them second cousins, uh, but they were just cousins. And so we're going to begin as we look at this first part of this family gathering, if you could imagine yourself showing up to the family picnic that Jesus and his cousin are having, uh, and, and maybe you're not uh, exactly sure of all the things that are going on. My goal today is as we walk through this family gathering, that maybe you will begin to understand why some of these are th things are happening. Like, I've got some questions as I study this passage, and so our, our goal is to understand why did these things happen. And by the end of our time together today, my real hope is that you don't just see a list of names that you skip over or some events that you don't fully understand, and so we don't dig deeply into them. But my hope is that we can actually see all of these events that happen in this family gathering in Luke chapter 3, maybe even as an invitation for us. And we'll come back around to what that invitation might be at the end of the day. But as we could look at this through the lens of Jesus having a family gathering, uh, let's start with the family swim. What do you say? Jesus and John get in the water. He jumps in the water with his cousin, and basically he says, my turn. You've baptized all these people. I'm next. Jesus wants to be water 
baptized. You might have questions like, why in the world would Jesus need to be water baptized? We're going to wrestle with that for a few minutes. Uh, But in order to do that, we're going to have to look at another place in Scripture for a moment. You see, Luke records this moment pretty quickly. It says, when all the people were baptized... Jesus was also baptized. Like, that's it. That's all we get from Luke. He moves on, which is shocking to me because Dr. Luke is the details guy. And he actually leaves some things out that Matthew includes in his, in his telling of this same moment. And so if you were, we'll put it on the screen, but if you were to flip over to Matthew chapter 3, some of our questions about this moment can be answered. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13, reads like this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. Uh, this, this moment feels a little bit like a moment later on as Jesus is wanting to wash his disciples' feet, and Peter goes, not on your life. I'm going to wash your feet. And Jesus' response is, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, then you can't have any part of what I am doing. If you don't allow me to serve you and to wash you clean in this way, then you can't be a part of the kingdom that I am coming to invite you into. It's, it's similar to that. So at the beginning of his ministry, John doesn't want to baptize Jesus because he feels unworthy. And Jesus says, he, by the way, he doesn't say, no, you are worthy. He doesn't disagree with his lack of being eligible to baptize the Messiah. He just says, allow it for now. Because this, as we do this, this is the way that we will fulfill all righteousness. So, of course, John is not comfortable with this. I mean, would you be if God himself shows up and is like, hey, will you water baptize me? No, of course, if you understand the implication of what baptism is about, you're not going to be comfortable with that. And John, who's just baptized all of these other dirty sinners, sees Jesus, who has no sin, and he feels wildly uncomfortable with this moment. And yet Jesus seems to know that there is a purpose here. He says, this will fulfill all righteousness. So let me offer you a a few ways that we can look at the baptism of Jesus that will uh, will help to reveal to us the purpose of this water baptism of the Messiah. Maybe then we can understand why Jesus said what he said, this will fulfill all righteousness. I I just want to say right here that there are so many things that we could say about uh, the, the nuance and the elements of why and how the baptism of Jesus and all of the things that we're going to study today are important. I'm just going to offer you a few because we have a lot of ground to cover. I, I could say that I, I think that the baptism of Jesus is important for us, that Jesus wanted to be baptized to set a model for us. Among other reasons, I think that much of Jesus and his ministry, he's actually modeling for us the way that we should live if we were to follow him, right? Jesus prayed daily so that you would see his model and learn to pray. Jesus hung out with sinners and ate meals with them so that you would know to be generous and welcoming to people who are on the outside of good relationship with Jesus or with God. And Jesus washed his disciples' feet, as I talked about a few minutes ago, so that we would know to serve one another, etc., etc., etc. Jesus is constantly in the modeling mode. Do what I am doing. And so a certain portion of the water baptism of Jesus is to model for us the ministry of water baptism. I think that this is important because if Jesus wasn't continuing the work of water baptism, uh, then we would probably be tempted to hear Jesus talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit later and say that was when he said go baptize people, that's probably the baptism that he wants us to continue. And so something of Jesus' being water baptized just continue again, among many other things, we'll talk about a couple more in a minute, uh, but it models for us that Jesus wants to continue the baptism for repentance, and that's a water baptism. So uh, water baptism has always been, it was for John, it was even before John, and it continues to be for us today a public declaration of a commitment to follow or to live in the way of your teacher or your rabbi. In this case, uh, water baptism for us is to follow the way of our rabbi, Jesus. 
But it's interesting then that Jesus comes along and makes this public declaration of a commitment to live in the way, to live the way of the Messiah. So it's like he is modeling for us that we should also make the same declaration, that to live in the way of our rabbi, Jesus. Now, I think another reason that uh, many scholars would say that Jesus is water baptized is because he wants to identify with us. Jesus makes it clear, uh, or rather John makes it clear about Jesus in his gospel that Jesus was the word and that he is God. Uh, You can read John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. See, Jesus did a lot of things that he did not actually need to do, but he did them because he wanted to identify with us. I'll give you an example of something that Jesus didn't need to do, but he did it because he was identifying with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He, God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying here, Jesus identified with our identity as sinners so that we could be identified with his identity as righteous. Does this make sense? Jesus wants to identify with us, which is why he does things that sinners do in order to become righteous. Not because Jesus was a sinner, but again, to model for us, and because he was fully one of us, his going through the waters of baptism for repentance doesn't cleanse him of any sin because he didn't have that problem. But he identifies with the function of it so that we would know this is wildly important. And even the Messiah, he went through all of the process of humanity. Next week, we'll even find out that he went through all of the process of being human. He was even tempted. We'll talk about that. Now, he wins that day, so come to church next week and find out how Jesus wins temptation. Maybe you can have some hope for how you can win temptation as well, but Jesus wants to identify with us. So he enters the waters of baptism to fulfill his righteous mission, to identify with us and then save us from the bondage to sin. Now, I'm going to say something here as another reason why I think Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, that on the surface, the first time you hear what I'm about to say, you might, I'm going to be thankful that there are no rocks in this room, because some of you might want to throw one at me just for a second, but, but let me say this, and then I'll explain what I mean. Okay, deal? Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. I think that another reason it could be said that Jesus goes through the waters of baptism is, remember, he wants to identify with us, is to repent with us. We good? Not yet. Let me explain it. Okay. All right. Certainly we know that Jesus had no sin. Say amen to that. We know that Jesus had no sin. Okay. All right. And yet he still goes through with the repentance baptism. Why would a person with no sin go through repentance baptism? I propose to you that here is where it becomes wildly important that we understand the meaning of the word repentance. And then I, and then I think I, I can get on safe footing to say this actually was Jesus was doing something of a repentance here, even if not the same kind of repentance that we need to do. You see, the Greek word that Luke uses here for repentance is metanoia, which means a change of mind. The implication is not, repentance is not inherently tied to sin. Repentance is tied to thinking and living one way and now changing your mind in thinking and living a different way. Does it make sense? So the implication of repentance is not necessarily of guilt or shame. We deal with guilt or shame because what we need to repent of is our sin. Jesus didn't have that issue. So rather, repent is to be living one way than to change your mind and think and live a different way. Godly repentance. Again, I want to drill this point very clearly home for us. Godly repentance is to turn away from not living God's way and then turning your life to living in God's way. One of the ways that we repent is then we practice the discipline of confession. 
We also engage in repentance, especially as we come into the kingdom of Jesus and his, and his family, is we go through water baptism for the baptism of repentance to make this public declaration. So all of this in mind, I think it could be argued, and by the way, I'm not standing out here on a limb by myself. This is a, 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 a scholarly argument that is made by biblical scholars. I didn't just make this up. Uh, there, there are some biblical scholars that, I, as I was even studying this week, affirm that this is an idea or a a framework for how we can look at Jesus's baptism for even repentance. I think it could be argued, we believe it could be argued, that Jesus actually did repent here. Not from a turning from sin towards righteousness. He didn't have that issue. But from a private life, 30 years, we, we have to remember, Jesus wasn't just born and then an adult. He lived for three decades he turned from a private life into a public ministry. Why does this matter? Because the second that Jesus comes up out of that water, there is no going back. There's no slowing down. There's no stopping. Everything is picking up speed and tension all the way to the death and ultimately to the resurrection of Jesus. This is the hinge point of the life of Jesus. He had 30 years to prepare for this moment. Whatever you theologically feel like Jesus had to do to prepare is not the point of this sermon. But the point is that he lived for 30 years. John tell, or Luke tells us that right there in verse 23. As he began his ministry, he was about 30 years old. Three decades of living a private life. The kind of life that embodied what it says of Mary, that she kept all these things close to her heart. I was talking with some friends this week about this idea. What would it look like for Jesus to have been aware that he was the Messiah? We had 30 years to figure that out and to think about that. And whether he ever had a moment where he didn't know and then he came to know. Or whether your theology of Jesus says that he knew from the moment that he was born and that he never didn't know that he was the Messiah. Either way... You live in 30 years, three decades, and then now he knows there's no going back. And you can make an argument that Jesus, well, of course, he's excited about this. Well, I would refute that argument by saying there was a day coming up in Jesus' future, about three years from this moment, where he is so, uh, dare I use the word, anxious, that we actually see Jesus in what I would say is his weakest moment, most human moment, where he actually says, God, Father, if there's any other way we could save these people than what I know I'm about to go through, but nevertheless, your will, not my will, be done. Jesus, 100% human, goes through the waters of baptism, and I, I would just argue for you that even though he had no need to repent of sin, there was a changing of his mind saying, I will never again live a private life. Life. Everything about my life is now in the trajectory towards the sacrificial death and the miraculous resurrection. This matters, friends. There's no going back. So Jesus gets in the water with his cousin and he receives the baptism of the repentance of sin to model the way for us to identify with our human experience and to turn toward his public ministry that would prepare the way for us to enjoy eternal life with God. This is good news. The, the, the water baptism is, is a pivotal, crucial, exciting moment in the Jesus story. And then immediately after this moment, Luke records uh, what I today will call for the framework that we're studying this passage in, a family picture. We get, we get a family picture. There's, the dad shows up, the, that, that interesting brother shows up, the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And we get a family picture. I'll listen again to how Luke actually records this moment. Um, uh, by the way, let me just clean up my own theology, uh, theological metaphor there. Uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not brothers. They're both God. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, was, I was just in the vein of the allegory. Okay. You understand that theologically. Sorry, my teacher brain won't let me move on from that. Okay. Luke 3, Luke 3 21 through 22. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized as he was praying... Heaven opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a physical, in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, as Christians, we believe that there is only one God. Say that to your neighbor, there's only one God. 
Now, this God, this one God that we know, uh, he, he is three distinct persons in one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We call this threefold Godhead. We have a word for this, the Trinity, right? Uh, scripture speaks about the Trinity in multiple places. But here in this moment in Luke chapter 3, we see all three persons of the Trinity together at the same time. This is a profound moment. We don't get to see this uh, outside of this moment, and then you can look into Revelation and see some other exciting stuff happening there between these three. But this actually strengthens our conviction that God is not uh, one God who becomes three forms, right? Like some of our, some of our uh, most popular illustrations for how to explain the Trinity is we go, uh, God is like, uh, he's like water, you know, uh, it's like the ice cube, and then uh, the water, and then the mist, and they're all kind of three different Father, Son, and Holy Spirit functions. Um, the problem with that is that's called modalism, and, and it, it implies or teaches that, uh, that the Father becomes the Son, and then the Son becomes the Holy Spirit, which is impossible because of this moment in Luke chapter 3, uh, where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinctly separate, playing distinctly separate roles that are all God roles because they're all God. Now, I don't have time to get in. This, this teaching isn't like we're not veering off into let's make sure everyone understands the theology of the Trinity. Uh, but I do just want to make sure that we understand we believe this here at Life Church. This is what Scripture teaches about God, and this is wildly important in, uh, in the canon of Scripture and in sound doctrine that God is three in one at the same time. Amen? Okay. So now let's look briefly at what happens here in this moment. The Father and the Spirit both do something very interesting. It says, again, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a phys in, the, in a physical appearance like a dove. Now, the Holy Spirit is not literally a dove, but there are two symbolic things happening here. The first is that doves, they have always, they still do, represent peace. So the dove landing on Jesus, in part, is revealing Jesus as the one who brings peace from God into the world. And then also, the Spirit descending on Jesus represents his being anointed to begin his public ministry. This is important. Jesus later on is going to say, hey, go and make disciples, but don't even leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus actually can say that because he did the same thing for us. He didn't begin his public ministry until the Holy Spirit had come upon him. That's actually very, very important. And then the Father speaks from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Again, symbolic and incredibly beautiful. You see, in those days, there was a tradition that would happen from time to time when a father wanted to hand over the family business to his son, that he would bring his son out into a public place, and he would make sure that there were people around who would hear him and who had some kind of engagement with the community and would say something like, this is my son, and I want you to know I am well pleased in this son, and from now on, this son is going to represent me in the family business. There was a public declaration of that handing over the authority to the Son from the Father. So the Father then makes this very public declaration. Jesus, this guy in the water right here, he's my Son, and I am well pleased in him. What is he doing? He's, he's letting everybody know, this guy's about to begin the family business. He's, ta he's taking the role of the family business, the, the Messiah has come, and his work is now beginning. What makes this even beautiful, or even more beautiful in, in my mind, is that you consider that the Father says, I am well pleased with you, and Jesus hasn't even done anything yet. That's really, really important. You see, Jesus, the Father expressed pleasure in Jesus just for being his son. So if you're wondering if God is pleased with you, well, if you are a child of God, this is a good moment. God's pleasure is not wrapped up in what you do for him. He's pleased with you because of what he did for you that makes you one of his. Now you can go do things. I mean, read, the, read James and figure out what you do with the things that you do, and you should do things for God. Do good works. Serve others. Bless the Lord. Amen? 
But God's pleasure for Jesus was not waiting for him to do the thing that he came to do. His pleasure in Jesus was just because you are my son. That's wildly important. So in this snapshot, Luke makes it really, really clear. This baptized man was the anointed son of God who was commissioned to the ministry of the Messiah. This is why this is a pivotal turning moment in the life of Christ. So we see there's a family swim. They get in the water. They do something really fun and important. There's a family picture. Something interesting happens right there in that moment. And, and then finally, Luke gets into the really, really exciting part. Just, I mean, I know you were all just on the edge of your seats as I was reading that. We'll call this, for the, our purposes today, we'll call this the family line. Luke then breaks out. Like, it'd be like if you go to a family reunion and Grandpa stands up and he reads the genealogy of your entire family. Doesn't that sound exciting? You want to do that at your next family picnic, right? No? This isn't what you're going to go do after church today? Skip the Super Bowl and read your family history? There actually is a, a, a growing interest in this, right? I mean, there's entire websites. You can sign on and get a subscription and find out who your great, 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 great so-and-so was. And that's interesting. Luke actually was interested in this in the same way. And we're going to talk about why this matters over the next few minutes. You see, Luke actually moves from narrative to history, going through 75 generations of people from Jesus all the way back to Adam and then to God. And this matters so let's talk about why. Now, broadly speaking, there are several reasons that, uh, that, that are beneficial to us for including genealogies in Scripture. First, genealogies root our faith in history. Isn't it important to know that you're not just believing a bunch of made-up stuff? That there's actually historical record. Genealogies validate the historical document that is Holy Scripture. Another reason genealogies are beneficial for us is that they emphasize God's sovereignty. Sovereignty means supreme authority and power. And yes, even as Pentecostal people who believe that we can pray in the name of Jesus and things happen now, we still also believe that God is sovereign. He has supreme authority and power. Historical evidence shows us that God has been leading the human story toward his purpose from the very beginning. I mean, think about the odds that Adam happened, and then in the same family line that God was able to orchestrate history all throughout all of these different generations so that then Jesus could happen in the same family line. I mean, just do the math on 75 generations. That's wild. And yet God was in control of this story all along. You see, this is a good reminder for us as Christians that God is powerful and in control, and you are not. That's a good reminder. I'm not in control. Whew, I don't have to lead this thing. Okay? So if a genealogy now makes you feel small, and it makes God appear large and powerful, then I just say to you, I think you're reading it correctly. The genealogy, 75 generations, you should be thinking right now, I am nothing compared to God who was in control of this narrative. I think you're reading it correctly. And, and I think then that, that the Holy Spirit would be using a list of people's names to say something about God to you. That God is big. He's powerful. He's got all of the authority, all of the control. This is good news. But then I think to balance that out, another reason why genealogies are beneficial to us is that they encourage us that we might also get to be a part of God's story. Right? Genealogies should certainly make us feel small, but they're not designed to make us feel insignificant. God's story is larger than any one person. God's story is bigger than all of us, combined. It's bigger than any one person. But while God's story is so massive, he knows every name. He knows every character. I mean, this is the God who it is said that he knows the hairs on your head. And while for some of us that is easier for him to do than others, <laughs> he knows the hair 
on your head. He knows every detail of your story. And he is fully able to redeem every story. I think if we took the time today, every single one of us who has a relationship with Jesus would be able to testify. This is how God redeemed my story, right? My parents did this, and then I did this, and then Jesus happened. God orchestrates that. He knows this. God intends to welcome us into the story of salvation, which is bigger than you, but is also all about you. Isn't that good news? Genealogies should be encouraging for us. So broadly speaking, genealogies help us. They are helpful, and they are good for us to read. And and then I I would even propose they're helpful for us to study because we could easily bounce off of every single one of these names and go, there's a story here that matters. And and if you know all of the stories and some of these names that you recognize, think about how God was able to to, to reconcile and redeem and restore some of the names on this list. It's incredible what God has done. And then specifically when we look at Luke's genealogy, because there are multiple other genealogies throughout Scripture. In fact, there's one other genealogy of Jesus in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew. But specifically as we look at Luke's genealogy, uh, we can remember one of the goals of his writing. You see that one of Luke's goals is to reveal Jesus to his readers as a human being. He wants us to see that he is 100% human. And not just that he was 100% human, but he was a real human. So Dr. Luke says, you know what would be really important is to root this man's lineage into history. So let's talk about his history. Now, Luke also actually makes an, inter- an interesting choice here in how he presents his gene- genealogy. Can, can you allow me to be a nerd in front of you for just a moment? Okay. Uh, You've, you've been here before. I do that every week, don't I? Okay. All right. In verse 23, he says this, and he began his ministry, he was about 30 years old, and was thought to be the son of Joseph and the son of Heli. Now, uh, just for your information, I just read to you two interesting things, that if you study scripture, you, you would catch these interesting things. Let me unpack them for you. Number one uh, is Luke uses what we translate into this phrase, that Jesus was thought to be Joseph's son. Now, in, in part, we understand that whose son is Jesus? God, right? So you're like, oh, Luke, that was tricky. I see what you did there, right? Luke is thought to be Joseph's son because I really know he's God's son. Good job. I, you, got, you almost had me there, Luke. That was good. Well, well played. Good little turn of a phrase. But, but then actually it goes a little bit deeper when we see the second thing is, is related to the first thing that Luke has done here is that he then says that Joseph was Heli's son. See, if you read Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, we actually find out that Joseph is the son of a man named Jacob. So there have been people who go into scripture to want to critique and prove that the Bible isn't real. And they say, oh, you see, it's not consistent with itself. And it, Luke says that Joseph's dad, like these guys don't even know who Joseph's dad was. Bunch of jokers, okay? Uh, which, by the way, I would just propose to you, like, just do a little bit more homework. It's, it's actually not that hard to figure out. Luke is doing something really, really interesting here. You see, Heli was not Joseph's dad. <gasps> oh, no. But he was his dad legally because he was his father-in-law. Because Heli is actually Mary's dad. Ah, Luke's doing something interesting here. You see, Luke actually gives us a record for Joseph's bloodline through Mary, his mother, on purpose. While, while Matthew gives us jo- uh, Jesus' bloodline through Joseph's father. See, you, you, you have two sides of the family. We use this expression commonly in English, right? What side of the family are you talking about? Right. Oh, that's Tim's side of the family. That's Sharon's side of the family. We're the connecting point of these two sides of the family through our marriage. You see, so Heli is actually Mary's father. Now, the question is, of course, Luke, why did you do that? Well, for one logistical reason, Dr. Luke, the guy interested in details and clarity, he's actually doing this because women were not commonly named in genealogies at the beginning or the end of a bloodline. It was a cultural imperative that he would not say 
Jesus, the son of Mary, the, the daughter of Heli. That's just not how genealogies were written. And Luke is interested in presenting a legal bloodline, and so he follows the legal pattern for presenting a bloodline to us. Uh, the legal norm for tracing a genealogy through the mother would begin with the father and then switch to the father-in-law and then continue through the bloodline on that side of the family. And this is exactly what Luke does. Matthew's genealogy stays with Joseph uh, with, as his, uh, on that side of the family because his audience was primarily Jewish people, and Luke's audience was primarily Gentile people. And so Matthew's main goal in this genealogy is to show that Jesus was eligible to sit on the throne of David. So all the Jews would go, he was the Messiah after all. My goodness, he comes from the line. He was eligible. That is why Matthew's genealogy is different. Not because scripture is inconsistent with itself, but because scripture covers all of the bases. And by the way, also, that's why then Matthew's genealogy stops at Abraham, because Matthew's trying to do something different, while Luke's goes all the way back to God. Why? Because Luke's goal is to emphasize the humanity of the Son of God. This, this man who was 100% human and who is 100% God. So he traces Jesus' actual human bloodline. How do you do that? Not through Joseph, but through Mary, his mother all the way back to Adam, and then, to prove his divinity, whose daddy is Adam? God. The one who this bloodline is actually all about. Okay, friends, you made it through a historical study of a genealogy in Scripture. 75 generations, all the way then back to God, from Jesus, back to himself. Good job. You made it. You survived. The question is, why in the world are we talking about any of this? Because you can get to the end of this portion of Scripture, and you can still be left wondering, what did I do any of that for? What, what do I do with any of that, right? I, I, I'm just constantly trying to, to wrestle as I'm studying these passages, and maybe you're like me as well. What do I do with any of this? And before we get into the what do I do with any of this, can I just say to you, one of the things we really, really value is something called biblical literacy here at this church. And so there are moments where it is important just to stop and say, do you understand what the Bible is saying? And so in its own right, the study of a genealogy so that you know the meaning of the genealogy is good for you to know. That can be enough. I'll see you next week. <laughs> actually, I think that there's more to it. Though. I think that there actually is something that we can hear as an invitation. And it comes back around to thinking about the first time that I went to a family reunion with my wife. You see, none of their stories made sense to me. There were stories that Sharon and Cheryl would tell each other, or they would go and talk about, you know, Uncle So-and-so and Aunt So-and-so, and, and I, I was trying to keep track of who's, whose mom is that? Like, which cousin belongs to the person? You just told me a story, and it took me a while. And, and I, you just, I just did that thing at the family gatherings for a little week, going, hey, good to see you again. <laughs> Until I began to figure out you know what happened over time is that their stories became my stories. But some things had to happen for their stories to become my stories. The first thing that had to happen is that they had to lovingly welcome me in. And they did. And they said, your, your story can be a part of our story. Come and come and learn and welcome. And as I kind of was like, I don't understand anything that you just said. They were gracious to say, hey, let me explain who that person is that we're talking about right now. They welcomed me in. But the other thing that had to happen is that I had to take time and put in the work to actually learn these people's names and their stories and, and, and learn the story so that their story could become my story. You see, this moment with Jesus is very much the same. 
Luke shows Jesus being baptized by his cousin, blessed by his father, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and validated by his genealogy. And you could sit there and go, none of this means anything to me because that's Jesus' story. And it's just good enough for me just to study it, but I don't think it actually impacts what I do with my tomorrow. And I would say, I think you haven't allowed Jesus' story to become your story yet. If reading his genealogy doesn't mean anything to you. So we have to take time to think about it. You see, the good news is that the whole point of the story is that Jesus says, it gets to be yours. Right? Luke records Jesus' genealogy from Jesus to Adam and then God the Father. But if you're just to read that in reverse, how, how does it end? I, I, think it would, I think it would sound something like this. Levi, the, who is the father of Matat, who is the father of Heli, who was the father of Mary and the father-in-law of Joseph, who were the parents of Jesus, who was the savior of, insert your name here. This is how the genealogy is supposed to continue. This is why it's important. Because just by reading 75 generations and understanding the implications of a man being baptized in water called called good and, and having his father extend pleasure to him and being anointed by the Holy Spirit and knowing what that kicks off in history, you can go all of the way through history and say that God who started this story and made it my story with Jesus puts my name at the end of that list. So is your name on that list? Is your name on that list? I, I grew up thinking that my name was on that list because I raised my hands on a Sunday and I prayed a prayer that a preacher told me to pray. And then that was basically it. Like, I'm just going to heaven. Not, I'm, I'm on the list. Check it twice. I'm on the list. And, and I think that you know that there's something more to it than that. I think that you know that Jesus came not just to put your name on a list, but to invite you into a way of living. And then, friends, to add as many other names as possible. And so today as we wrap up Luke chapter 3 and we move on from studying a list of names, I just want to ask you to spend some time praying with me. And spend some time praying with your friends, with your family. I know that there's places in my own life, and there's places in your life, too. I know this because you're human, and I'm one of you, and I identify with you as human, and Jesus identified with us as human, and he very much knows that there are places in our lives where we don't act like we're a part of the family. And I'm not talking about the problems with the Western church. You know that I, I'm not afraid to make commentary about that from time to time when it's appropriate. I'm talking about you and me, your life right now, if you were to just take a moment and evaluate, in fact, why don't we do that? Can I invite you just to close your eyes if you feel like this is a place that is safe for you to do that? If you want to engage this practice with your eyes open, you're welcome to do so, but I would invite you to close your eyes and just not be distracted by the things around you. And if you could, just take a, take a good, slow, deep breath and Set your focus on this Jesus who was baptized to set the tone and begin the story of that portion of the saving work that God did for you. And can we, whether you've prayed this prayer or a prayer like this a hundred times or never, can we, because Jesus invites us to join the family, pray together? And as we pray, I, I, I want us to give our hearts. Uh, you, you give your mind over, give your life over. Commit your story to become God's story in any place where it's been your story and not his. Or uh, move further into the kingdom in any place where you've consciously or even subconsciously been saying with your actions, I'm just going to live my own way, Jesus.
Can we pray this together today as if we were coming into the water, as if we were moving into the family? And if you would pray that with me today as you think about your own life and relationship with Jesus and say this with me, say, Jesus, I believe that you are who Scripture says you are. I put my faith in you. And as I live in your family, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I thank you for your promise to forgive. As you call me one of your children, tell me who you say I am. Teach me your way of living. And send your Holy Spirit to anoint me for your service. I dedicate my story to tell your story. Amen. Amen. Praying like that, friends, is an invitation. Responding like that, responding to, to Jesus. It's, it's an invitation for Jesus to come and, and, and take over your life. And, and it's responding to the invitation to join the family. And, and so I, I, I know that this is the moment where we would say, if you just prayed that for the first time, you just joined the family. And, and I want to celebrate that with you. But I also want to say to you, this is just a step in a lifelong journey, living in the water with Jesus, living fully covered and baptized by the Holy Spirit, a part of the family, and as your name is on the list, also seeing how you can partner with Jesus to add other people's names to the list. And so there's one more thing that we need to do today before we get out of here. And, we're, and it means we're going to pray again. And so what I want you to do over, just over the next few moments is you may be sitting near a person. If there isn't a person sitting directly next to you, maybe just see if you could kind of scooch over a little bit and find someone that you can talk and pray with for a moment. And here, here's, here's what I want you to do. You see, as I think about the names on the list, I think about the names that aren't on the list. I know people who aren't in the family, and you do too. Can you take a moment and just pray for them with a neighbor? Just name them before Jesus. You don't need to tell their whole story. You don't need to explain they were a Christian and they left the church or they never met Jesus. Just, like, just name them together. Will you do that? And that prayer can sound something like this. Lord, I name and then say their name. I name them before you. Would you bring them into your family? Just go ahead and turn to a neighbor and pray that together over the next few moments. I'll wrap us up again after you pray that people would join God's great family. Thank you, God. God, we, we know we actually could just keep on going. We could keep listing the names of people that we want to be added to the, to the family line. We thank you, Jesus, that we have been welcomed into the family. Help us to walk fully into your family. Learn the rhythms and the ways and the language and the culture of your way of living and your kingdom in your family. Thank you, Lord. God, we pray for these people that we have named before you today. Even use us, God, but bring them into your family. Add their name to the list. And then, friends, finally, I pray this blessing over you. May you, as you walk with Jesus in his family, fall more in love with his word. Being able to see the beauty in and, and even in even the the seemingly mundane moments, but may you see beauty in the Word of God. May you find your identity deeply rooted in God's family, and through your story, may God's family grow and be blessed. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.